Hey everybody, this is John. And this is Vince. And you're listening to Legends of Tabletop. Creating legends one die at a time. Hey everybody, we've got something a little bit different for you today. Uh, We just came back recently from Necronomicon in Providence, and we recorded a bunch of panels while we were there. Uh, Two of the panels are our own. The first one here that's being released is a panel on technology and gaming. Uh, I've tried to clean up the audio as best I could. Convention panel audio is notoriously poor, Uh, so I hope you'll forgive us for that, and uh, we hope you enjoy the panel. Thanks. All right, so I guess we're ready to go here. Uh, this is the Games and Technology panel here. It's the uh, first time uh, I'll be moderating anything ever, so please bear with me if this happens to go a little astray. Uh, my name is John Haremza. I am the uh, co-founder of the Legends of Tabletop podcast. We do actual plays, interviews with game designers and all that sort of stuff. So we're, we're happy to be here and happy to be participating. It's my second year being here at the Necronomicon, so we're pretty excited. Um, so the, the panel for today, I'll just read out of the thing here, it's uh, horror, sci-fi, and Lovecraftian gaming has grown so is technology. No longer are games confined to a tabletop. They can be played on many platforms. Uh, learn what is best in life and use your newfound technology to crush your enemies and see them driven before you. So I will allow the panelists to introduce themselves and we'll get started. My name is Vince, co-creator of Legends of Tabletop and silent partner. Oh, yes, I'm talking to my friend. My name is Vince, co creator of Legends of Tabletop, and the sound partner, sidekick. Oh, my God. It's already Oh, no, it's terrible. My name is Leah Bond, and I do interviews and such, and I have a lot of fun and it's a blast working with these guys for Legends of Tabletop. And I do appreciate all of you coming out today. So, thank you. I'm uh, Jesse Pine. I started the Dragon Fisters actual play podcast and currently run and play in games for the Legends of Tabletop. There's a lot of nepotism that's going on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name's Matt Hawks uh, from England. Um, I've got a, a Facebook group which I uh, uh, call Board Game, which I put together. Uh, I run sort of gaming groups twice a week back home, um, and I've got my web shop where I sell games as well as part of that. Um, and I've just been hosting some games here at the con as well for the first time this year, so uh, that's been good fun as well. I'm Mike Lynch. I'm a part of the faculty in the Games and Simulation Arts and Sciences at Rensselaer uh, Polytech, and Neil Deals asked me last night to join the panel. I have no idea what I'm Everybody, my name is Ash. I am a Gothic Studies uh, graduate student. I also do game studies. I look at narratology and how do we convey things through game mechanics primarily. I also probably, like a couple of the people here, found out I was going to be on this panel like a couple days ago. So yeah, <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Sort of, sort of catch as catch can as we've been coming close to the con here. Um, so, you know, gaming used to be, you know, the kind of thing you did in your basement, you know, you rolled dice with stubs of pencils and big erasers and colored your dice with crayons and things. But we've moved, you know, out of the realm of that into, you know, more, more digital media. Um, you know, we have things like Roll20 and, and, you know, dice apps and all these different things. So the, the first question I'll ask to the panel here, is that a good thing? So do you allow technology at the table? And if so, what degree do you allow technology at the table? 
like technology as far as it can bring people to the table, such as Google Hangouts and things of that nature. Um, as far as uh, anything else, texting, um, anywhere where it's going to be, be a distraction for me and my players, I sort of frown upon. So that's, that's my key point. Okay, uh, tech and gaming for me, uh, on, on tabletop games, it would be a Google Hangouts thing, and I love it, and I am able to game with the same group of people from all around the world um, once a week. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, let's get together and do this. And my husband uh, has been running a game over AOL Instant Messenger. Yes, that's still a thing. Uh, for 25 years. Yeah. So they've been meeting every week. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And that's about as far as it goes before you hit video games. <laughs> I have a uh, double-sided view of it because as a DM uh, and a, you know, a general game runner, I love technology because it helps me organize all my games and uh, you can organize your notes on a tablet and keep track of everything like that and running encounters and keeping track of numbers and everything is beautiful to have right in front of you. You don't have to bother flipping through a bunch of books. As, my pl as a player, I hate it because it it can take your focus away from where you really need to be, which is the piece of paper directly in front of you. Um, there's just way too many distractions that can literally pop up as you're trying to read everything. Uh, so unless you're just totally shutting your down, yourself down from the outside world on your phone, uh, I really don't see that happening. But as a, as a game runner, as the head of the table, it's an absolute beautiful thing to have, whether you're at the table or you're playing online with a ton of people. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I use Roll20 myself, and I must admit it's a good, it's a good tool, uh, especially, I mean, I do a role-playing game night once a week on a Sunday, um, but it's trying to get certain people together because most people can't make it. So I find Roll20 is a good tool for people that, I, I mean, especially when I've got friends that live in the States and they live too far away at home, it's just a great way to get, you know, uh, to get everyone there. Um, as around a table, I wouldn't necessarily use it. For me, I'm old fashioned with the old sort of, you know, pens and paper and handouts and, you know, that kind of thing. So. Yeah, uh, but yeah, uh, Roll20 for me is probably my favorite. Okay, I see that I'm at a panel involving tabletop games and not video games, so already <laughs> I'm on that at a disadvantage. Um, I'm curious about the idea though that because I, you know, I play Arkham Horror a lot with people and uh, a lot of busy work involved with just manipulating all the materials. And uh, part of this, I think, like the idea of a distraction or being a problem where the tech gets in the way of doing it, and this is a user experience design problem, mm. that if you could build a really nimble tool set to where you could have a tablet in front of you that ran the show so that you just have to conduct the, the run the game mm -hmm. and not have to deal with paper and flipping through pop charts and all that, could it be done that well? Is that the thing that needs to be built out there that would people would embrace if it were available? That's just a question I'm throwing out. Um, I'm going to respond to that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to go ahead and respond to that. There is a product on Steam uh, that is like Roll20, 
but it is for uh, for a tabletop gaming that, that does specifically what you had what you had described. So I don't know what it is yet because it really hasn't come out, but it is currently in beta testing. So there you go. Well, so I think I might um, have a similarly dissenting opinion. I'm also like a video game guy, whatever that means. Um, but, but I did run a D&D campaign about a year ago that was entirely digital. I didn't use paper or anything. I had everybody, everybody had either tablets or smartphones or laptops, PDF editors. I um, had a flat screen monitor in the middle of the table that I just pushed like digital tile maps onto and like little sprites for dragons and stuff. I used text messaging to facilitate like characters who had like you know psychic communications or like a familiar or something. So I think that like like it, it really is a user interface problem, right? Because if you're if you're trying to use like Gmail or, or something really awkward to facilitate a D and D campaign, it's going to fall apart in your hands, and you're going to run into a bunch of weird errors. But if you're if you think ahead and you plan intentionally, and, and you're like, okay, like this is how I'm going to make it work, and you iron out the kinks before you start playing. It can really streamline the process, and then you're not like, you know, fumbling through a stack of game manuals, searching for like, I don't know, like the the range of a particular fireball or something. When you could just like Control F fireball, and then it just pops up, and you can scroll right down to it. Did yeah. you write code for this? You actually built all the code to build this. Uh, no, I, I just I am way too lazy for that. I used pre-existing <laughs> stuff. And I just stuck everything together like a lazy bastard. I'm not. Yeah, that's proper. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um, so, you know, when you sit down and start a new campaign, we'll stay on tabletop for now, um, and, you know, you have a conversation with the players about, you know, what the expectations are, what the players want to get out of a game, what game do we want to play. Is technology also a conversation that should take place at the table before a campaign even starts and say, hey, look, no phones at the table, no laptops, no Facebook, we're not going to do any of those sorts of things. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of a uh, of like a session zero type situation where you want to lay out all the rules ahead of time. And that's going to have to be, especially now in this day and age where everybody has a cell phone, a lot of people want to just roll up a character on an app and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely a conversation that ha is required to happen at the front or else you're going to have somebody that shows up with their cell phone and is checking Twitter all the time and you know, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say like ban everything ahead of time, but just lay out the guidelines and that definitely has to be one of them. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I mean, everybody's busy, you have kids and things like that, so you can't be completely incommunicado for, you know, a four or five hour session for, you know, D&D &D or whatever you happen to play, but there should be some expectation that people are there because they want to play, they want to have a good time, and that everybody is fully engaged at the table. Does anybody have any bad experiences with that at the table where they have had players that are just completely disconnected from, from games? Yeah, I've had it a few times with uh, on the on, on, on the game nights where people are just, they're not focused on the game, they're, they're just on the phone, they're just texting or they're messaging, and you know, that can get frustrating because you're trying to you're trying to be polite but you know <laughs> um, you know throwing dice at me in the end usually works but yeah, yeah. yeah ringtones Ring, ringtones have killed oh. it for me a couple times <laughs> like it's so hard to like set a really like you're, you're, you're trying to set some like geopolitical medieval thing with necromancers and you're yeah. trying to get a group of people to buy into the seriousness and legitimacy of your fictional world <clears throat> And then, like, Thriller pops up. Yeah, it's just the <laughs> ultimate plus, though. Take it completely out of the game. Right? Yeah. 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 
Urban works if you're trying to set up like a horror vibe oh, yeah. and you're getting everybody into it and all of a sudden it's like do 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 nope <laughs> cut it when you're talking about focus too I mean it doesn't it really doesn't matter if, 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 if your focus is removed whether you're playing complete with, with your character sheet whether it's paper and pencil or you're on an iPad you can just be flipping through your iPad through your character, looking for the rules, or you're flipping through the book. I mean, so it's it, it, it really comes down to a matter of focus. It takes you outside of, of, of tech or paper and pencil entirely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I guess I'd ask the question in terms of just simple courtesy or, or politeness. You yeah. Know, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's like turning your cell phone off when you're in a movie theater. It would right. seem that, I mean, you, you have more experience at tabletop printing than I have, I'm sure. So is it a question of players these days just don't care or they, they don't respond to suggestions like, you know, please do get into the world they're about to enter and turn off these peripheral devices because they are distractions. Mm -hmm. And if it's going to undermine the world you're trying to create or the mood you're trying to set, it seems that players have to sort of go along with that. And that's part of a precondition of sitting at the table. Mm -hmm. If you're not prepared to do that, it would seem that something well, else should be done. I guess it depends on what area you're in. I'm analog. I did not grow up with a cell phone. I just did not. So right now, this is a, this is a treat for me. But I know when to turn it off and when to use it. I know when to say, all right, well, this is enough. I don't need to be that connected and set it aside and be engaged with the group in front of me. Yeah, I think it's, it's all a lot about, like, I mean, obviously, like, talking with your play group ahead of time is, is helpful. And then um, it depends on, like, what kind of game you're sitting down to play. Like, you're sitting down to play, like, a few hours worth of like flux or just some tiny quick right. fun game like it doesn't super matter if somebody's like Beyonce ringtone or they start <laughs> tweeting about something like that's not gonna tank the experience but if you're doing some like headier Dungeons and Dragons or like Arkham Horror like a complicated long board game that mm -hmm. has a buy-in yeah, like yeah. that'll definitely poison well. Yeah. The latest game you're playing would actually in the game fusion from yeah. Oh, so in our in our Fear Itself campaign that we have currently, it's a modern day setting. So, in, in some instances, it's you know you have the technology and you know you can include it into the game, but that is a specific situation with a modern setting where you have all those things available and you can use them in game. Where like you guys were saying, you could you know send text messages if someone has you know psychic thing or you know someone literally texts you in game and the GM just sends yeah. you a text message. Uh, so there's interesting applications that you can apply to that in your tabletop gaming. Um, do any of you specifically use, you know, music, sound effects? Is there any like mood setting things? Is there any aspects of technology that, at least for the tabletop people, uh, are using that to, to set mood and tone and, and sort of you know create that immersion with technology? Yeah, I've definitely uh, in the past used various soundboards to give. I don't. I try not to do like constant sounds, but if it's a background, like if there's a party going on, I may play some music, or if there, I want to convey the, the bustling of a city, then I'll turn on, you know, just general traffic in the background and stuff like that. It, it definitely does help get everybody in the mindset of what's going on, but I never try to make it the, the focus of what's going on, because obviously that should be everybody around the table. So. But I, um I ran a, a Call of Cthulhu campaign and it was set around a jazz band and they were playing certain songs uh, uh, at a concert so obviously went onto YouTube to find all these mm. songs uh, and then when that, you know when the time arose you know I started playing them and it just added a bit more you know a bit more feel to the game yeah 
so in some sense it's you know like having you know handouts or you know player aids or, you know pictures and things like oh you find a newspaper clipping especially in a Call of Cthulhu game and you know like here you go so does this technology sort of trump that to a certain degree to to bring this extra to the table as opposed to just basic like here's a handout or here's you know the hidden notes we used to do for D&D &D and that sort of stuff. I, I think it's all about buy-in and what you're trying to get people to buy in. Like for, for a Call of Cthulhu campaign, like getting one of those like ye olde newspaper articles is <laughs> just like the coolest yeah. feeling in the world. Yeah. But if you got that like pushed to your tablet via the DM's email, like that would feel a lot less authentic. Yeah. Yeah. Or like you pull it up on your tablet and like, here everybody look. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be curious about um, what you can do with the room you're in, where you're using like stage lighting techniques and so forth, and like put lights on dimmers, put gels over the lights, create a different look just by almost saying you're not in your ordinary space, you've entered a magic circle, mm -hmm. in this other space, and attend to it, and use that technique. I mean, sound certainly has very evocative properties, yeah. but it seems like what you can do with lighting. Lighting as well. And yeah. you know, maybe you have some extra things that you add and just create the setting. No, I've actually seen uh, on Reddit that uh, people with a lot more time and a lot more money than I do, than I have, um, you know, setting up. Can remote control lighting in their room with different colors and different patterns and everything and you know I think that being in one of those rooms would be amazing but I don't think it has to be the standard bearer you know that's kind of the height of what's possible but I don't think that it's something that everybody should strive for. Well, certainly, I mean, there's yeah. a cost factor, but I mean, uh, what's good about LED lighting today, for example, is that I did having a, a, an LED array that you could color tune, saying, I'm going to have like a bright daylight blue-white, or I'm going to have a sunset reddish, or some other kind of thing, or a midnight blue when it's light out and the moon is out. These are things that, that's very subtle. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, you, if you spend time studying what you can do with this, it would seem that, okay, it's daytime and the lights sort of shift into that thing. It's probably, as you say, it's probably more money than you want to spend. Yeah. But they used to start at 200 bucks on one of these, now they're like, you know, 25 bucks. Right. The prices are, the trend line is favorable. Yeah. So. Yeah, I run a D&D &D campaign wherein uh, most of it's pen and paper, pen and paper. And I have a very limited, very limited use for the players for their, their, their technology at the table. One instance where I found it's very helpful rather than passing notes is the uh, the text messaging, especially when someone has a familiar. And I can, like the whole psychic ability, like your familiar does this, does that, it's, it's telling you this, it's telling you that, and it's easy to do that with the, with the, with the text message. This way the players kind of know when I'm doing something, but they don't know who's getting the actual text. So there's a little bit of secrecy there. That was your character. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, just real quick, going back, you know, you were saying that setting up the, the room and everything, I think that a good comparison between uh, being at home and being at a table and being able to do all that versus online gaming that, you know, while Roll20 and Google Hangouts and everything is great for getting groups together that maybe normally couldn't meet up in person, there's a lot that you can do that requires being in person. It's very hard to play music and set lighting and do all this kind of do sound effects yeah. um, online because it, uh, it. You can on Roll20 because uh, I use the sound effects on Roll20. There's a, a little uh, audio section for it. Oh, right. uh, very nice. Uh, yeah. So, do you think that, so for the GM specifically, 
can that use of technology sort of overwhelm and sort of disjoint what's happening in the campaign? It's like, oh, let me send a text message, or oh, I gotta turn the light off. Ooh. You know, I gotta turn on the music at just the right point to build to that crescendo. Can, can that be a, a you know factor for the GM that sort of just throws everyone's immersion, even though you're trying to f further immerse them with the technology? It's, sometimes it's timing too. Like in case in point with your, your Raven familiar, everyone. With the greatest part is everyone around the table is talking and trying to go hash out what's happening. I can quickly send them a text or whoever it was and saying, hey, you're blah, 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 says this. If you, do, if you may want to do this, if you want to do that, uh, here's a little hint while everyone else. So it doesn't take everyone out of that. I mean, there are, there are cases where, oh, what's he doing? So that may add to it, maybe track. Okay, kind of building off of that, like, like as, as a GM, if you don't take the time do just like you know, like if you don't if you don't read the rule book ahead of time for whatever system you're using, and then you yeah. try to be a GM, everyone you're like you're going to keep interrupting the story, keep interrupting yourself, mm -hmm. you have to look stuff up. And it's the same like if you try and use um, like 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 PDF editing software instead of like physical character sheets, and you as the GM don't know how that particular software works, you're going to keep interrupting yourself in the system. Like, and it's the same like if you download a soundboard and you don't know how to like turn off the dragon fire sound and it just moves for a couple minutes while you panic, like you're, you're going to just wreck the immersion. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, I think like using tech is just like knowing the, the physical paper rule book. Just, you just got to prepare yourself ahead of time. I think the, um, the sparseness of it can definitely help too. I think people that try to involve technology in every single aspect of the game can overdo it and overwhelm the game it takes the focus away from the people at the table and instead puts it on what's going around outside of the table um, so sending the occasional tech message text message is good sending the uh, playing the occasional sound effect can be very good using lighting sporadically here and there to really accentuate an event can be great but if you're constantly changing the, the lighting and you're constantly playing music and everybody gets a text message every five minutes, you know, it really kind of deteriorates the base, uh, the base game, I think. Yeah, and I think, I think that would be like, just from like an analog standpoint too, like that's the same as like a GM who wanted to like pass out little private notes like every couple of seconds. Yeah, right, like exactly. Really tedious and time consuming. It's about, it's about like balancing your activities and balancing how you're using whatever technology, if it's a really simple technology, is like pen and paper, or if you're using like laptops or something. Well, isn't part of this kind of a performance art issue where in a sense you are a performer and uh, you can do a bad job performing. You can like not be artistic about how you use whatever technology you put to work. Mm -hmm. yes. um, one thing I learned a long time ago, uh, this was actually doing planetarium special effects, is um, slow fades. You could take one full minute to go from darkness on some wash of red light on a wall, mm -hmm. take one minute for it to show up, have it on some timer or something, and then there's a reddish glow on the wall. I have no idea how it got here. Mm -hmm. I didn't notice it coming in, yeah, but when right. it lands, it's like, that was defective. And uh, I was surprised at how well that works. And I'm um, just throwing that out as an idea, but you have to do, you know, less is more is still true even here. You can't, as you say, throw text messages out every 10 seconds. It's crazy. Why would you let the technology steamroller what you're trying to do? I mean, it's really a matter of it's working for you. It's not you're working for it. Right, I right. Think. Definitely. Yeah, sure. Sure. And, and Jesse was talking about that, and we've all sort of touched on Roll20 and, and Google Hangouts and Skype and those sorts of things. 
Um, and it, it is a different experience to play via Google Hangout or Skype. It, it's a different it's a different mindset. There's different distractions. Um, what's been your experience with using you know either Roll Twenty or just Google Hangouts, playing or Skype? Um, does it what uh, what do you see that's different in the way that the game is played as a GM as a player? You know, how do you need to approach things that? sort of utilize that technology because people are disparate areas. You know, they, maybe their kids are running in the background and there's different things that are going on. So how do we keep focus on the game and, and how does that game get portrayed using that medium? It can be difficult if you have uh, dungeon tiles or 3D tiles. Um, if you have, like, in case in our, in our, our, our campaign, we have three table and three piped in Google Hangout. And I'll set up some, uh, you know, Dungeon tiles, and then you have you have to have a webcam at that point if you're going to use those. So at that, you have to stop for the moment, and then each character's turn, you have to pan down with the webcam so people can see what's happening on the table. That can sometimes get in the way. You guys have you guys are running that problem? Not. I, I've never dealt with. Well, I haven't dealt with that before over Google Hangouts. Um, I've just. Played Call of Cthulhu like with you. Oh yeah. Yeah, um, and We're things all like that. With that one. Yes. You know, there's no physical table. No, yeah. no, there wasn't. But uh, with Roll D20, uh, I've had the best luck using that. Uh, visual aids with that. It's it's immediate. Everybody sees immediately what's going on on the screen, and I find that helpful, not just for myself but for everybody playing as well. Yeah, that makes sense. yeah, I have to uh, you know, agree with you on that one because being able to build your own maps on there and you can actually show where everyone is, especially when it comes to combat and you need to know where everyone's placed and how far away people are and line of sights. Um, the only thing about um, the only issues I've had online, it's because of, of the delay, you end up speaking over each other sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's the only too, yeah. kind of issue. I've kind of oh, and, and sort of mics dropping out, you know, you know, you 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 you, you, you know, you, you'll be talking away, you won't realise that you've dropped out, and then they'll PM you over over Skype or something. Uh, we can't hear you, so you go all the way back, <laughs> do it all again, you know. So right, which bit did you hear last? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yes, yes. I would say the um, the one thing that I really do like because we were talking about focus earlier too, is when you're when you're playing an online game, I find that the players are a lot more focused on what's happening um, because you know, you can't just talk to the person next to you. Uh, there's no side chatter at all because everybody's basically at the same volume. You can't just lean over, uh, so. You know, you really have to kind of listen to what's happening to the other person because if you start talking, then you're just going to absolutely interrupt what's going on. Uh, you do still have the same, you know, similar side uh, of you know people having Instagram open or Reddit or Facebook, but if they're sitting there with a pair of headphones on, your voice is in their ear constantly. Uh, the the side tracking is minimized because they can, uh, even though they might have that little side focus over there, uh, it's a lot easier for you to bounce back and pull them back in. 
mean, in, I mean, in my defence, I have actually been playing a game and with the headset on and actually made a cup of tea whilst the game's still been played. <laughs> but, it, but it, you know, it hasn't distracted you from the game because, you know, like you say, you can still hear what's going on and right. you can still give your input. But, you know, when you need a cup of tea, you need a cup of tea. Absolutely. <laughs> May I interject? Um... Okay, great. Uh, the, the one thing that I do find irritating about Google Hangouts and Skype and things one. like that, um, you'll agree with me, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, yeah, if, <laughs> if the person that is not talking does not mute themselves and instead you're left with a bunch of click me, click me, click me, yeah. Yep. So that's about it. That's true. <laughs> I do mute. I do mute. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes I forget to unmute, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is less of a, of a technology issue, but more of a, a storytelling issue with playing games online. Uh, I feel like there needs to be a more descriptive aspect to things, like to get people engaged, because you don't necessarily, like in the campaign that Vince runs, we do have minis on the table, mm -hmm. and there is a pause while we pan cameras and kind of like, no, move to the character's right, you know, four yeah. spaces. Um, but to get everyone, you know, sort of in space where games where we're not using minis, there needs to be more of a descriptive aspect, like just of the room, of, of the motions, of the action to really tell the story and keep people engaged in that regard, uh, because there is no visual prompt. I mean, we, you know, played games where there was no, you know, people just had cameras off, and mm -hmm. we were just essentially sitting playing a game, you know, just old school but just not the favorite. So you've played in my game. <laughs> so to, to bridge the gap here to the to the video uh, video game guys. Uh, so where where is the bridge between tabletop analog tabletop and more, you know, video game console? Where where do we see that mixing, blending? Um, is that effective? I think the question partly turns on what you plan on doing with it. It's the kind of thing where, for example, if you're trying to test a new game mechanic for a video game, it's usually not a bad idea to work it out on pencil and paper first. Make sure it actually works. That way you spend a lot less money than writing a lot of expensive code <laughs> in a way. So it's a good idea to actually field test these things before you go to production with them. Uh, in the case of like tabletop per se, straight up, uh, what I'm hearing is that you've got like really two very different contexts. One being, I have a bunch of friends who are geographically separated and I want to bring them all together to play a game, in which case you're all being mediated by a technology and all the usual problems attend, lag, delay, dropouts, not muting, muting, all of these things come up and they interfere with what you're doing because let's face it, this stuff is not working perfectly yet. Okay. We haven't figured it out completely. On the other hand, the idea of having you know all everyone at the same table where the players are committed, then the idea of what tools can we use there, like the idea of this little handy thing on a tablet that you know I can run the show as the GM and make all these wonderful effects happen, subject to my budgetary limitations and time and effort putting it together. But wouldn't that be useful? I mean, I don't think anyone's really addressing that except the one you say is coming up on Steam possibly. Yes. Um, when you think of all the busy work and running D&D &D or something like that, wouldn't you love all that to just be done for you yes. and just concentrate on the experience? Mm -hmm. Well, um, and also, 
I'm just going to speak to the back of the room here. Um, With a microphone. So, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, what, what's going on is uh, also there's going to be a new uh, web development for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons put out. I think it's by Hasbro or. Yeah, they own the mar They own yeah, the label. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Random House Hasbro, whatever. Um, <laughs> Um, they are making it part of their website, so all you have to do is log into their website, and then you've got all that taken care of, all of it taken mm -hmm. care of. Um, I have not used this tool, and you you brought that up, and it, it made me think about that because I've seen it, I've seen it, and and I have not checked it out, but that is some tech that I should take a more serious look at mm -hmm. because it would certainly be on the fifth edition that we're playing now, um, having a stack of manuals and having to flip through all of them at various times, yep. depending on who's the rules lawyer. <laughs> so. Well, uh, <laughs> well, they have, uh, so Wizards does, uh, you know, you brought up fifth edition and everything, they do have D&D &D Beyond, which has rolled out in beta and they're in phase three right now and all that kind of stuff. and. It's going to be very interesting because they have uh, online spells and all the rules are searchable and you can create a character and create a com campaign and they have an encounter designer and an encounter manager and they're starting up Twitch integration so eventually you'll be able to run your game on Twitch and also be able to do all of your campaign and encounter management from that system. Um, so I think that plays a lot into it. You're exactly what taking all about, of yeah. the effort away from you and putting it right onto a database. And the effort is now you can concentrate on the experience you want to create for the campaign. Exactly, yeah. You want and not worry about the busyness. Right. That's, that's, that's a brilliant idea. That's yeah. exactly what I was hoping somebody yep. was doing. Now, how is everyone else going to join the party? Can Steve Jackson Games afford to do that or Chaosium afford to do that? That's I, the yeah. problem. Yeah. This is a big yeah, thing. On, on, yeah. Although they have uh, the team that is running D&D Beyond is, I believe, seven people. Hmm. And uh, one guy inputted all of the spells, a few hundred spells, and he did them all by hand and tagged them all by himself. He didn't bring so. the file in and just... <laughs> right, it didn't all just magically it's go. Already, it's already yeah. on the computer. Why don't you just... Right, turn it into right. it's easy like that. <laughs> well, it's good that, you know, at least you don't need a development team of 20, 30, 40 people in order to put something like this together. If you are five or six people and you want to take the time to do it, it's feasible, at least. I know World of War, uh, not World of Warcraft, um, Warhammer was doing things like that with apps that would help you all play yeah. Warhammer. That was the thing that got me thinking about it. Yeah. Kind of going off of that too, I mean like, World of Warcraft, Final Fantasy XIV, Secret mm -hmm. World, even RuneScape, like, they've, they've done all of this. Like, all of the back end of being a DM is entirely handled by the code of the game. And you can just play with your friends as whatever roleplay character you get. You get your stat sheets, you get your treasure, you get your weapons, you get your mm -hmm. roleplay experience. And you're, you're somewhat limited in what you can do, like you can't like wish in something that, the way you can in D&D, &D. you know, you can't have lightsabers and something that doesn't have the licensing from Star Wars the same way you can at your home table. Are you but, playing Rips? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're, 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 I mean like, like massive multiplayer online gaming mm -hmm. really, really does a lot of this like translating the tabletop roleplay experience into a strictly digital sphere. Yeah. I actually think a really good bridge for that, ways back, 
um, was Neverwinter Nights. Yes. Is that you had the single player option, and that was great if you didn't have a lot of friends around who wanted to play with you, and you could still kind of get that D&D experience. But then there were the private servers, mm-hmm. where as long as the as long as the runners were the devs were paying attention, you could have yep. the wish, you could have lightsabers, you could have all of that regular tabletop experience, but at an amped up online level. Uh, it was really unfortunate that that all fell to hell, but you know it's one of those things where for a moment it did make that dream come true of like a really good interactive online RPG experience. And there are some sites that do that, not to the full extent which you're talking about. You have Obsidian Portal and uh, Hero Labs and things like that that, yep. that can help you know, with campaign notes and creating characters and sort of bookkeeping, as it were. But it's you know, still something that you have to do sort of after the fact. Like, okay, we ran a session, go put all the notes in, or put all the notes in before a session, and then take more notes in and put those notes in. So there, there are some things that sort of touch on that, but not to the level that you know, D&D Beyond has right now with yep. the, you know, fully integrated, which is what they've been talking about since 4th edition yep. and still haven't really delivered on it. Yep. <laughs> and, and that was sort of the not <coughs> was that it was very much, you're very much just pushing pieces around and it wasn't very immersive and, and role-play oriented, um, which fair enough but but does that does that video game experience equal what you would get at the tabletop is so like right now we have uh, you know more cthulhu gaming that's coming out video game that's coming out we're having you know more options and not just okay i'm gonna play call of cthulhu or i'm gonna play delta green or um trail of cthulhu you know you now have options to play video games that maybe translate that experience um, have you guys played anything along those lines? What's, what's been your experience with that? And do you think that, that video games in general can convey that sort of experience that we have from tabletop and that shared you know, storytelling? I definitely think the potential's there. I think though they're kind of two different animals you know, in, in the same respect. Like we can't expect video games to be able to directly translate the tabletop experience, and we can't expect like Table, like, like there, there, there'd be no successful way to make like a tabletop version of Super Mario Brothers. Like that would be like <laughs> Monopoly, no? Yeah. <laughs> besides Monopoly, Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers Checkers, and probably Super Mario Yahtzee out there. But there, yeah. but I mean like like there'd be no way to like make a tabletop systemization of like platform jumping. You know, just just like there's. You know, there's a lot of hurdles if you want to like make the digital equivalent of systemizing like a Call of Cthulhu game with a DM that's not a human and just a computer. Yep. I guess it's just a nasty AI problems and so forth too, because I don't think you're going to be able to replace a human DM at any point. And the thing is, is that um, the same thing comes up with like interactive storytelling, where you cannot really design out the author. It's impossible. I mean, they think they can but it's been met with failure after failure over the decades, and it really is, we have to respect the fact that the human creative component that comes in, not just the DM, but the players, when you're sitting around a table and having a framework in which to have an experience, it's a different matter than having, okay, the code's all been written, you're gonna go into this thing and shoot at whatever you have to shoot at, Mm -hmm. and it's been designed for you, and it's not really so much a shared thing, even if you're playing in a multiplayer environment, it's still, it's in the context it's been designed for you. 
And I don't think you get the same effect. I think you're saying, I don't think you can make platformers happen on a tabletop. You could. You could make it out of Lego blocks, maybe. <laughs> but it really, would it really work, though? Or would you care? Right. Um, I think the best experiences you have when you play tabletop is the social interaction you have mm-hmm. and the, the fact that in, you know, creative, interesting people are doing creative, interesting things with the materials you hand them. And that's the job you have. And I think that's the job anyone building these things has. Yes. And it's a different, it is a different, I agree, but it's absolutely a different animal. I think that's cool. The technology really has to become invisible. Whatever you're using has to be not in your face. It cannot interfere or slow you down. If it's doing that, it's kind of a failure. It really is. It's sort of like saying, I'm going to, I'll be a good example. I'm going to like uh, do a shopping list and I'm going to like write it down in a PDF thing and then print it out and go to the store. <laughs> I'm going to write it down in a pad of paper and be done with it. You know, it's like there are t- sometimes pencil and paper wins, and we should respect that fact. Yes, that that it does. But going back to the roots of video games, when Richard Garriott uh, made the first Ultima version of Ultima, that was on a teletype machine, and the wall, I mean, it it drew a dungeon and everything, but the walls were, like, symbolized by asterisks and things like that, and it it just printed out on, two-dimensionally, on a piece of paper, and then you, you, you rolled your dice to see how much you moved forward, or if you encountered a creature, you know, and, and so he tried to program in the DM aspect, but it took away the group dynamic and it made it just more just single player. Mm. And and that's pretty much the same. It seems to me that that's the same dynamic that's been successful for video game programmers over the years as a medium to get people immersed into the worlds that they're playing. Um, And console-wise, I spoke with uh, David H. Schroeder of, oh, Digifun or something like that? Yeah, uh, he he wrote a video game for the uh, ColecoVision called Dino Eggs. (laughs) And it just celebrated its 30th anniversary. It was great. Yeah. So, I mean, then they were limited only by what the equipment that they had access to. And as the technology has grown, the depth of it has grown, but it's gotten to the point where if I'm playing a video game, it might as well just be asterisk. You know, you you see the the skins that are on the wall and and it's, it's not the same as tabletop, but then again, tabletop is just imagination as well. I think I think the core problem with this is that the thing that video games are objectively the worst at doing is systematizing human interaction. Mm-hmm. Like the, the the best video games really have for this right now is is the the branching dialogue tree conversations. Mm-hmm. And that is like 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 have you ever walked up to someone and been like, all right, am I gonna am I gonna flirt? Am I gonna argue or yeah. make a neutral comment? <laughs> right. Like, mm-hmm. like 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 video games are, are awful at that, but video games are 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 arguably much better at simulating violence. Like like you know, a hit or a miss is so much easier to to make into like a, a binary coded system. Yes. And then you you can like video games just hide the die rolling, hide all the awkwardness that comes with trying to convey that in a mm-hmm. tabletop sense. 
There's, there, there's no arguing about your physical placement amidst a bunch of orcs, because you can see it right there in front of you. Yeah. But then, you know, when you have to go back to the village and report on how you did getting rid of those orc bandits, it just falls apart entirely because you're just like... Click, click, click. Yeah, click. Slay <laughs> them, click. I did a good job, and you can't convey anything through that. To but the order. conversation minigame in Oblivion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, go back to what you said about uh, like a role-playing game into a computer game. Um, I mean, I think I think I think Cthulhu works better with point and click because uh, mm. Dark Corners, uh, the old Xbox game, started off really really well, yeah. but then it just uh, turned into a first-person shooter. And for me, that wasn't Cthulhu, H.P. Lovecraft. It, you know, it's more about the investigating. And I think like you know, the point and click. There's an old PlayStation One game, which uh, I forget the name of. I've, I've actually got it. Um, and yeah, that's just like a, a point-and-click game, just investigating uh, the area of sort of uh, you know, Providence and Port Tucket. And, uh, but yeah, that it conveys it better. Okay, it's old now and it's really slow, and you you, you know sort of waiting for screens to load. You know, okay, hurry up. You know, but, you know, <laughs> I find it more fun, to be fair. You know, so. Uh, speaking of cosmic darkness in video games, how many of you have played Eternal Darkness on the GameCube? Yes. Great game. Yes, Eternal Darkness, Rule of Rose on PS2. You got you got one person. There you go. Ah yes, I I love. You have a new that. friend. Did you did you? Huh? I was like, I pre-ordered it back in the day. <laughs> oh my goodness, I dug it out of a discount bin for 10 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> what did um, you mention? Rule of Rose. Okay. It's, yeah, it, unfortunately, it has been banned, and they only made 10,000 pressings of it. Yeah, and in the UK, it was banned. Um, it, it's kind of racy. But at the very end, have you unlocked the skins for brown? Oh, there's a shotgun skin and a, an Amigo skin. <laughs> um, oh gosh, what other what other Mythos video games can you think of? I, I, I had one. I bought a copy of a game. It was called the Necronomicon, and it was the late '90s, early 2000s. And I, it was a PC, and I tried playing. It was one of those where it was like some video narration but most of it was like you're trying to travel through the leave a house enter enter a town go from place to place but the video motion itself was extremely limited you pretty much had arrows and mm. you had to click and then you get it was almost like a yeah that's that game that was on yeah about there to, but you have games like mist yeah. and riven and things yeah. like that that did like, similar things it wasn't like yeah. um you there was an extreme limitation of movement. It was almost like you could look left and right through an alley, and if you wanted to go, yeah, you had to move a direction, and it's like you're transported there, you're transported here, but like there's something like on the box, it's like, oh, unlock the mystery, and you're like, I can't go anywhere, I can't do anything, so like, yeah. I am sorry, I saw you raise your yeah. hand. No, What's that? You mentioned Eternal Darkness. Oh, um, yes. Frankly, they, they actually tried to make a sequel to that. <gasps> yes. Kickstarter. Uh, we got the same team together, Silicon Knights, and it was a disaster because oh. they were asking for like a million and a half. Oh. And then they did a second Kickstarter, and there was no success with that one, even though they were asking for a fraction. They got 
frankly, I think they should simply do an HD version of the original game and release it. Yeah, you have to think about a game like that. I a, my game yeah. Just for that game. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Same. Uh, yeah, you have to think about how many people owned a GameCube back then, and then how many people happen to stumble across that game. The percentage of population is incredibly low, so the chance that you're going to be able to actually kickstart anything like that is absurd. So. Oh, uh, Red Wasp Designs. Um, what, what was his name? Wasted Land. Huh? Wasted Land. Yes. Yes, a tablet game. And that's that's the thing about survival horror video games is it's so clunky to control. But that helps add to the atmosphere of fear. Oh, gosh, can I not get this done soon enough? How am I going to move? You know, mm -hmm. it, if you get that clunky movement control... I mean, and and I, I got some of that with the Wasted Land, but I, I never have been good <laughs> with uh, RTS. Oh, what's going on? No, just, I mean, Ash mentioned The Secret World. Like, you want to talk about Mythos. Like, yes. that game has, and I wish they had been able to come here, but they're at another convention in Europe. But that game, you, your first, you start out in in Maine, of course, because mm -hmm. it never happens in Maine. And you're fighting against, like, old ones, basically. Yeah. I mean, that, and you have townspeople that are turning into fish people. Yeah. So, and, yep. and that game, and it's really brilliant. I mean, if you haven't tried The Secret World, definitely check that one out as far as as far as mythos stuff goes yeah. it is important they just uh didn't they basically just shut down the online app now it's basically a single player game right i think it went to uh, origins you, still you, the, you can still do the old one but yep. you have to jump through some hoops to get it to work yeah so the, the the secret world which was the first iteration of yeah. games the servers are still running They've just basically stopped development on it. That's, they yeah. relaunched it as Secret World Legends. Legends. So now it's it, yeah. more of kind of like a third-person action RPG, but it still has the MMO aspects. You can still join up with people, okay. do do all the quests and dungeons and all of that. It's the same story. Hmm. They were just like, we want to refine the game mechanics and we want to, you know, new engine. Yeah, new yeah. engine and stuff like that. So they just essentially relaunched it. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think that's where, uh, in terms of horror games, uh, MMOs and online games, and I think electric ga electronic games in general have a leg up on the tabletop experience. Because it's one thing to be sitting at a tabletop, even if you darken the lights and set a mood to be sent, and then there's, you know, a Shogoth next to you, and... Everyone's like, ooh, okay, I roll. <laughs> As opposed to if you're, you know, in sitting in front of your monitor with your headphones on, dark room, and then all of a sudden you turn your camera and there's this giant fish thing, that's going to scare the hell out of you. So. I'm kind of curious about, like, old-fashioned, like, text-based adventure texts or mm -hmm. things like the old-fashioned multi-user dungeons, which can be multiplayer, and make the experience, like, purely literary, where you're doing away with any visual component. And of course, this is good for your budgets because you can do that. And all the tools you need to build these are available, like this twine and ink and yeah. so forth. And you can build these for free. And now the burden is on you to tell a story and use the literary effects. Does that have any resonance with anyone, or is that the kind of thing that's like uh, maybe too much trouble for it to be worth your while? Well, I'm actually interested because I've done you know play by posts in Facebook games and things like that, but I'd really like to know. 
if there's any market out there and if there, it's been done of just a... There's no market. I mean, yeah. you will not be able to... I mean, anyone doing interactive fiction kind of knows you do it because you're going to get out there and put it out there. Um, we actually have somebody who makes money doing that, don't we? And um, But it's hard to monetize that because it's, it's, just, it's not stale so much, but everyone wants the visual. Mm. And so that's what drives the market. But to do a more literary thing, that's the old Infocom company, mm -hmm. sort games like that. They did very well for a while, yep. but then the video came along, the visuals came along, and I think you're never going to get the, the broad swath of the market that's going to be content with just words. Yeah. So um, how do you play that? At the same time, some very satisfying things can be made. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking of Infocom, they, for those who don't know, they were pretty much the interactive fiction company back mm -hmm. in the late 80s, early 90s. And they made a Lovecraft game called The Lurking Horror mm. that was set at a fictional version of MIT called George Underwood's Edwards Tech, or <laughs> um, And it was kind of a blend of King and Lovecraft, and it's a fantastic game. Um, and uh, there's actually been a number of interactive fiction contests where people create using yep. tools like, uh, um, like on an Inform and other engines that uh, basically it's an interactive fiction engine where you create data files and the parser is already built for you. So you don't have to trouble yourself with parsers and so on. You just create the textual data. Um, and one of the award winners was a game called Anchorhead that's set in uh, a New England town called Anchorhead that's adjacent to Arkham. And you're investigating, you know, you're a, a recently married woman who's investigating the, uh, the um, ancestry of your husband. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a very creepy little game. Kind of, kind of um, going going off of some of the things, <laughs> but um, go, going off of that, I mean, like like Twine. Like, if you want to get into building your own video games and you don't want to learn code, you don't want to work with graphics, you just want to do something that will take you like a thirty-minute YouTube tutorial to learn. Like, check check out Twine. It's free to download, and you make interactive text-based games. And some of them are really successful in conveying a lot of horror aesthetics. The, uh, the one that's coming to my mind is My Father's Long, Long Legs. It's free to play online, and it is just the weirdest game. And it's, you know, it's interactive fiction, so it's got all these branching paths, and it's just a really bizarre little game. And um, the, you know, like, like you were saying, there's not a lot of ways to monetize Twine and these HTML-based games because the, like, the overhead's so low, what would you even charge for it? But they, they have launched careers. I mean, um, the, the, this book is a dungeon, started out as a Twine game, and now it sells for like 10 bucks on Steam. Yep. And then uh, Zoe Quinn, a part of her career was launched on the back of Depression Quest, which is a Twine game. So it's it's not a, you know, it's it's not gonna bring you the Call of Duty money, but it is a way if you wanna start working with games and making games to try something out and get your name out there. There's also itch.io, which is a resource for this. A lot of games show up there, and some of them actually do have a $5 or $2 price point. So you can get games that have a modest amount of monetization, but your tools cost you zero. Yep. I mean, you download it, you have drive space, you're basically set. It's really entirely driven by what you can dish up by way of your imagination. If you can do that, um, you can do it. But um, text-based in any sense is probably tough to monetize even under the yep. best of conditions. Mm -hmm. When you're referring to text-based, you're referring to like uh, Leather Goddesses of Phobos? Like Leather Goddesses of Phobos, yes, another great Infocom game. And uh, 
You know that one, right? <laughs> Leather goddesses of Phobos. It's legendary. Um, the story behind that is that Infocom was being acquired by Activision. They made this like really cheesy B-movie kind of a science fiction story. The working title in-house was Leather goddesses of Phobos. And some Activision vice president shows up and says, what are you working on? Leather goddesses of Phobos. That's the working title. No, it's a great title. We're going to ship it that way. And they did. So, I mean, then Infocom died shortly after. Mm -hmm. Go figure. Yeah. All right. So, it seems like we've sort of moved into the, uh, you know, audience participation here. So, if anybody else has any questions or anything, comments, want to interject into the panel here? Hold on. There was an MC that I, I, I kind of went through this period of experimenting, trying new games. And I won the game that I loved the most was Blood. I never got into Blood 2, but I know it's Blood was one of those games, it was a first-person shooter game, but it had this incredible freedom of movement. And instead of, you know, minions, you had zombies and cult members with machine guns. And it was like, instead of Ash, you had this cowboy, it was like a combination of, like, you took, if you took Indiana Jones and put him into uh, a Lovecraft novel. Um, but I remember, it's one of those things, it was like based on Doom, or, yeah, it was kind of the same trend where it was, like Doom and Half-Life, but it was like lots of carnage and corny, corny sound effects, but mm. I found that, you know. Chris, uh, Chris your, uh, your statement just brought up for me, uh, Eldritch. Oh, okay. Eldritch, it's a, it's a roguelike okay. um, that is built much like the original Doom. Yeah. Um, but it is very mythos-based. Like okay. you wake up in a library and yeah. you have okay. to read tomes and it'll take you to different areas. Um, and you have to bite deep ones and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, and another one is, oh, oh it, it just slipped my mind. And, and you had something that you were gonna say. Yeah, um, I know it's kind of broad, but uh, I was wondering what y'all's uh, two cents was on Bloodborne. It's amazing, everyone should play it. Yes, but is it Lovecraft? Yes. Yes. It is it is it's it's not it's not mythos, right? You're not gonna find Shogas and Deep One and Arkham and you're not gonna get like kill something in Miskatonic. But but to say it's not drawing heavily from Lovecraft's fiction would be a terrible misrepresentation of what the game is doing. So so Lovecraftian, absolutely Mythos pastiche, definitely not. Another that just comes to mind is Amnesia the Dark Descent, which is another game that was uh, kind of in that. In fact, the engine is called HPL2. <laughs> you, can mod it. you can actually go in there and mod it yourself. It's a bit unstable to work with it, but it is a moddable engine. And Amnesia was definitely a, an homage to, to, to Howard Phillips, so that's one too. Where do you guys see some of the augmented reality going, like with superimposing things on, you know, say an actual environment, like you're getting with the Pokemon kind of technology and all that, like, you know, do you see that being something that is an interface between like a video game and, a, and an actual, you know, human imagination? A absolutely. I, I'm just going to hop right in here and say absolutely because my friend Art Bell, I'm not Art Bell, Bat Bell. <laughs> I've listened to Art Bell in the past. He's great fun. Um, <laughs> my friend Matt Bell, uh, uh, we've worked together in the past um, making music creation uh, in VR with the helmets and, and all of that uh, augmented reality. I can definitely see a big future in that, but the only stopping point for that right now 
is the price point. And the only thing that's going to happen with that in the future is the price point will drop. And as the price point drops, more people will hop on board with this and it will gain in popularity. At least that is my and if anybody, if anybody out there has or has access to a VR headset thingamajig, uh, Euclidean is a VR Lovecraftian game. It's on Steam. It's like ten bucks, five bucks, something like that. Okay. And it's it's really really fun, and it's a really cool way to systematize a lot of the like you know the Lovecraft favorite adjectives, like like you know bizarre geometries, non-Euclidean, undescribable. It's a really interesting way to try and visually immerse a player in one of those using a VR headset. So, I don't know if anybody's heard, but it's a game called Canarium. It came out on Steam not too long ago. It's just pure mythos. It takes place right after, like, Mountains of Madness. Like, it is worth the play. And it's currently on sale on Steam. It's on sale right now. It's on sale right now. <laughs> 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 I was going to say, one of my, I got a real Lovecraftian vibe in Skyrim, the Dragonborn DLC, Hermes Mora, specifically that Daedric Prince. Forbidden tones of knowledge, and you keep getting sucked into his crazy world. Hermes oh, yes. Uh, so kind of back to what you guys were talking about at the beginning with having tablets at the table. So we're actually in a game where everyone uses tablets for like our character sheets and so half of our group uses an app called Fight Club and mm -hmm. half use, we use Hero Lab and Hero Lab supports D&D uh, 3.5, 4, and 5 and then they also do Pathfinder cool. and so we're running a, uh, one hour, we're part of a uh, 5 game and it has all of your spells, it has weapons so you can just, if you pick up a new weapon you can find it in there and just drop it in and start using it right away. If you need to level up, you can choose your new spells, you can roll characters, and it's been pretty successful. Like We don't have a lot of problems with distraction. It really is part of it is your players need to be really dedicated and focused to playing the game. Mm -hmm. Also, as DM, you kind of have to be like on top of it and watching some of our players. So we have one person that sometimes will get a little bit distracted and has to kind of like, you know, call them out on it. Um, but it worked out really well for us because we could take notes of things that happen right on our tablets. Um, my handwriting is atrocious, so if I need to take notes <laughs> that I need to be able to read an hour later, I need to actually like type them out so I can write it all up. And then in past games where we've used it, um, we would use our tablets to take pictures of our dungeon if we had to end the game like mm -hmm. halfway through a fight. Absolutely. We need to remember where everybody was yep. and what the board looked like, so we take pictures because one of the groups, RDM, ran multiple groups, and so she needed to reuse all of her stuff. Mm -hmm. So we take a picture so that the next time we come and we had to show her the picture, she could draw everything up, put everybody back in, and we start right back up. So there are a lot of tools out there that are really useful for playing. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, as far as like integrating like board games with tech, um, we talked about you guys talked about Steam. There's actually a Steam app for Mansion of Madness. Mm -hmm. Normally that game takes forever to yes, set up, yes. but the Steam playing uh, with it is it makes it a lot more streamlined. It still takes hours to play. There, uh, so they they have like time limits that they're like, oh, this will take you like two hours. It's more like eight hours. Mm -hmm. um, so it's still an all day commitment, but it doesn't like doesn't take quite as long to set up. And having that interaction with the tech, like playing it, we have a friend that does it on like their big screen. Um, it's really neat being able to integrate that. Um, and one more with the with the board games is uh, Betrayal at the House of the Hill. Yeah, I was about to say because those little s s 
uh, marker things <laughs> they, don't, they don't fit on the card properly yeah. Yeah. you've only got to slightly knock it and yeah. so yeah I actually downloaded the app exactly. just to you kind of have to have that because like you said they just don't stay in place mm. and so you need this little app just to keep track of, of your your life points and mm -hmm. sanity and things like that so there's a lot of opportunity for tech to integrate with games pretty seamlessly and you know, I'm, I'm hoping to see more of that but uh, yeah. if you haven't checked out like Hero Lab, we, I love Hero Lab because it's just so easy to use in startup. Um, it does have a fee to go along with it, but because mm -hmm. of all the stuff that it has in it, and because it's already all flushed out, um, the D&D Beyond thing isn't quite flushed out all the yeah. way yet. Um, they primarily just have the, the SRD. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that eventually they'll have more of the like, Unearthed Arcana stuff, because uh, like the character that I'm playing uses a lot of Unearthed Arcana, um, which is implemented already into Hero Lab. Yeah. So that's definitely a tool that you can use at the table, because like if you have people whose handwritings are just atrocious, using uh, paper is not super viable. So yeah. that's definitely something to check out. Uh, I will say, in I like programs like D and D Beyond and Hero Lab and in in uh, Cobalt Fight Club is a good one for encounter creation. For ease of use, the one thing that always irks me about it, and the reason that I kind of detract, especially new people to a system from using it, is I think it really separates you from the knowledge of the game and the mechanics themselves. Is that you have, you can basically be like, okay, I want to be a human fighter, and I'll, I want my strength high, and I'm gonna just be a, uh, and, and so roll that up for me. And I think that people start to lose the, the connection to the game itself from stuff like that. Because then you don't understand how the numbers got there and why they're there. And so for a person creating a new character who's, who's new to a game or really doesn't quite get it, I think that it can definitely be a hindrance to them later on when they... Re they want to explore but they don't necessarily know how the narrative and the numbers connect because they've relied on a system to create everything for them already. Yeah, I mean, there are some apps out there now which teach you how to play the game as well. Yes. Which I find you know, quite useful because everyone hates getting a new game and having to keep flicking through the rule book. <laughs> so when yeah. you've got an app which goes through with you step by step and sort of mm -hmm. tells you you know what to do and how to set it up. I think that's pretty cool as well. Yeah. A couple radically opposing <laughs> ideas. I wanted to clarify some things on Mansions of Madness. The first edition was a full-on board game mm -hmm. where there was a keeper who had uh, a scenario that was kept completely hidden from the characters, and then there were the players, uh, one to four players. The second edition of it, which is which was released last year and is already the 20th highest ranked game yep. on board game geek is an app-based game. Yep. So there is no more GM, uh, there is no more keeper, it's the app that's acting as such and doing a lot of the, the work behind the scenes. Players still have tiles, they still have miniatures representing the monsters and themselves, there's still dice to be rolled, uh, but you indicate on screen your success level, that sort of thing. And I think it's, it's just a fantastic experience because it doesn't involve all of the, uh, the, the setup and the preparation mm -hmm. time that's involved. It's a full-on co-op game, like something simpler like Pandemic is, but with a narrative. And what's re remarkable about it is the fact that it's surprisingly replayable, because the first time you will lose, and I honestly think most of the scenarios are designed so that you must play it several times, 
there's no way to win it the first time because you don't know certain things. And as you play it successively and learn more, um, you will get closer to the solution, but it may take you several times, and things will be changing, and things will be in different locations each time, so it's not literally the same game each time. So the second thing I want to mention is that as, as primarily a board gamer, what interests me is, in gaming technology um, is manufacturing and mechanism technologies in board games, not electronic games. So for example, if you look back at a game like Magic the Gathering, that was a new technology. The idea of using cards in that way is a brand new gaming technology before that games were stale. Now we have games like San Juan because of it. Um, San Juan could not exist without the technology of Magic the Gathering. Um, there are all sorts of, uh, someone mentioned the idea that um, as certain technologies, I think Leah mentioned, as certain technologies have become less expensive, it's, been adop it's adapted more. Yes. So card, <coughs> card printing technologies, there's, there's you know, half a dozen card manufacturers in Europe now. And in well, even more in the United States yeah. now, because shipping for specifically Magic the Gathering, there had to be uh, facilities okay. pop up to meet the demand that was generated by that game. Exactly. So, I mean, it's much cheaper for manufacturers to provide you with printed cards of good quality. And you're seeing so many companies producing fantastic looking miniatures. Yes. Um, or customized dice. Uh, one of my favorite current games is 1775 Rebellion. Yes. And it's got customized dice that are unique to each faction and cards that specify the differences with each faction. And you don't have to remember rules like my units operate this way and your units operate this way. It is built into the cards and the dice. And I'm fascinated by those kinds of technologies because it advances board gaming, making them making games easier to play and more immersive with a manufacturing technology. And I yes. think that's just incredible. And I, I see a lot of electronic technologies like app-based games that are going to change how some games are, are made uh, and some games are played. <coughs> Again, uh, like you said earlier, you know, sometimes the physical stuff works out. Um, I remember a time where uh, computers, personal computers, started becoming more popular, and everybody was like, oh, within a year or two, we're gonna all going to be balancing our checkbooks on our computer. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see a show of hands. Nobody does that. That's not what we use computers for. No, and, and you, you again brought that up to my mind about uh, emerging technologies. Uh, there is a gentleman, Arian Croft, and he is making his own games, designing them as, as CAD files and STLs, and, and yeah. where you can download and print your own miniatures mm -hmm. for the game, your own terrain for the game, either that game or whatever terrain that you need. You can generate yourself. Um, I have been playing around with my own 3D printer for quite some time now, and I find it very rewarding. And as that technology continues to improve, um, I look forward to what else I can create. And there's something to be said for the tactile feedback of those miniatures and those dice and those cards yes. that yes. electronics I don't think ever will replace. No. Uh, you mentioned like the old Neverwinter Nights tool set. Uh, like those servers, I know. GameSpy went down, some of those servers are still up. Mm -hmm. I was going to mention um, there's a game coming out, Divinity 2, which has got something really similar, or they're promising kind of a similar thing, like a tool set where you have a, like a GM watching you and there's players, and they, you know, you know, the players do, the GM can do that. But I also know there's like a history of like, 
like never when a knights had the tool set and I remember way back there was like a vampire the masquerade mm -hmm. that had that same tool set and the promise always seems to be like this is going to be just like being a DM and then that's that promise has been there for like 15 years so I don't know I just, was just going to mention the divinity too when it looks promising but I've heard that before. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think you could ever replace that that human interaction. Just that <coughs> there's only so much that you can program in, and that you know cooperative aspect of storytelling is just never going to be replaced mm -hmm. by that technology. Like the rule twenty stuff, though, like all that on on Steam or, or whatever it's called, the apps on there. They they almost look kind of like a video game. There's those graphics. They're mm -hmm. like, they're not quite the same thing. Yeah. Yes. And then we had uh, RPG Maker, um, Lee Bamber, the game creators. They have, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to remember the name of it. And it is an RPG Maker, but it's in, I'm going to remember the name of it. <laughs> I hope so. I just interviewed this guy not too long ago. And uh it, it, it is where it places the tools to create your story in the game. And my vocabulary just died. No. <laughs> my world is the game. My world, okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> I was just gonna add to that. I think, like, based from my perspective, the problem with those, the tool sets that come out, they always promise that, oh, it's gonna be super easy, anybody can use it. Yeah. And then the reality is that it actually takes a lot of time to figure out how to use it. Mm -hmm. You need a certain level of expertise to actually be able to put something together that people are going to want to interact with. So that that's just my experience trying to deal with those tools. It's never as easy as people say it's going to be. Yeah, I ran into that issue with uh, Neverwinter Online. Is they had the dungeon creator, and the dungeon, and I was, and they were like, you just drag and drop pieces in, and you can create it, and you can create a story in an hour. And I spent two, easily two or three hours in it, and I had a room. And I'm like, all right, great, yeah, this is good. I have a room that people can just pour it into and do nothing. That's awesome. <laughs> There's something to be said about Game Maker, though, because. We all know one specific game that was just an asset flip, Digital Homicide. And what was it, uh, what, Kelly for? I was just gonna go on to the virtual world creation. Yeah. I had difficulty with that because I tried to create a fully customized Minecraft world mm -hmm. as a virtual walkthrough for a Call of Cthulhu campaign. Oh, and I think it ended up bringing up more issues because <laughs> I was trying to use representations and mods and trying to get details in there, but any detail that I wasn't intending was what the players pointed out. <laughs> so it's the same problem online as it is at... Exactly. <laughs> you, if you put the emphasis on the wrong part, they're going to go after that instead. <laughs> yeah. It would be like the paintings are just generic paintings that come up in Minecraft and they'd be trying to find a clue in it. Like, just the random painting that popped up. Okay. <laughs> We're, we're in quarter up, so we're out of time. we got to clear the room. I want to thank everybody for coming and participating in the panel. Thank you yes. to the guests for coming. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. 
For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com. Okay, there you go. This thing is on. It's on. It's on. It's on. Pardon me. Excuse me. There's no technical questions. We're not only talking to this. I filled Neil's role. Don't worry. You're good. Right. That sounds like a horrible room clearing story. We do some oh, weird stuff at Nakakana. Yeah. <laughs> it is a Japanese animation. Oh, uh, there you go. Fair enough. We got like, two more minutes. We're just going to see if anybody else happens to show up. It looks like a relatively small group, which is great because I'm absolutely terrified right now. This is the first time I've ever had a panel before. Like so some drugs? Cthulhu Sharing is good. And then the summoning <laughs> ritual begins. We had a projector get that picture of the goat from last night at the barbecue. <laughs> oh my gosh. Did anyone eat that or was that just for show? No, that was that was for sure. Although, yeah. who was it? Uh, the game was down like super fast. It was like 14 bucks for like a little bit. Really? Yeah. It's the experience you're buying. Yeah. Right? Hi! Come on, come on in. We don't buy it. What? <laughs> I thought that was a. That's. I mean, they made me bite someone to come in here. Yeah, I thought that was just what you did. It's Lovecraft. The doors were closed and people thought it was a closed session. Oh. Too many people. There we go. I think we just doubled the size of the crowd right there. They were in like uh, 10 seconds. Seconds. Right? There you all are. I was wondering where you were. Yeah, I kind of was going to be on this while I was on the train. Yeah, I don't know. I see your enemies before you. I mean, I think it's done. 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 I
Ja, das ist ja, 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 ja,